0: We begin this morning with two passages of Scripture, one is from the twelfth chapter of the Gospel of John, and the other from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. From John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 12 through 16, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And had been done to him. And then from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The greatest comfort that we have as Christians is to know that we belong, body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ, the same whom the Apostle Paul describes as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He who sits and reigns as King at the right hand of God the Father, and who is even now working to subdue all his enemies beneath his feet. Some of these enemies he is pleased to conquer by his invincible grace and bring them to a wholehearted and joyful submission. Others, were told in Scripture, he will subdue with a rod of iron. As David says in the second psalm, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Pay homage to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The same psalm assures us that the nations have been promised to our Lord Jesus Christ as his inheritance. The ends of the earth are his possession. They are gifts to Jesus which the Father promised to give him as a reward for his suffering. As it says in the prophecy from Zechariah, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It is this same Jesus to whom we belong both now and forever. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the ruler of all the cosmos, the ruler of all the universe, this is the one to whom we belong. He is our shield and our defender. He gave his life as a ransom for us, and he loves us with an everlasting love. And I ask you, what could be better than that? What would you trade for that? Would you trade all the riches of the world? Would you trade... That for power to rule the world? I mean, what would you trade for that? To know that he who rules the world is our God, our Savior, the one who died for us. What thought could be sweeter than to know that we belong to him, both body and soul, both now and forever? It is this same Jesus whom the prophet Zechariah foretold would come to Jerusalem riding triumphantly into the city on a donkey, and this same Jesus who was hailed by the people as their king and received with shouts of praise, and the children singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, celebrating with their palm branches. He came to Jerusalem as the promised son of David and as the heir to the throne of Israel. Yet, as the Lord God said through the prophet Isaiah, it is too small a thing, it is too small a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, this tiny little nation, this small group of people? Is that really commensurate with your glory, who you are, that you should redeem so small a people? It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved ones of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so our Lord Jesus Christ is not only the King of Israel, but He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And He will sit at the right hand of God the Father where He is now until, as the Bible says, God makes all His enemies the footstool of His feet. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem was a foretaste of this future glory, only a faint reflection of the reception given to Him when He ascended up on high, when God When God received him, when God took him up, it's described in the 24th Psalm. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. His triumphal entry into Jerusalem was a foretaste of the glory that was to be his after his ascension. In the same way that his reception on Palm Sunday was a foretaste of his future glory, so the throne of David, of which our Lord Jesus was the heir, was only a type or a shadow of the kingdom Christ was destined to receive when he ascended to heaven to be enthroned at the right hand of the Father. The prophet Daniel had a vision of this in the seventh chapter of his prophecy. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, the name here that is given to God the Father. This one like the Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days on a cloud and was presented before him, and to him, to this Son of Man, to our Lord Jesus Christ, was given dominion And glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. This is a prophetic description of Jesus' ascension into heaven to receive universal dominion when he ascended. And this part of our Lord's experience, his ascension into heaven, his being seated at the right hand of God the Father is an essential aspect of the gospel. Now, why do I say this? I say it because the gospel is the proclamation of the rule of Christ. The gospel is the announcement that the king has come and he has begun to reign. He has been raised to the throne. He has been invested with authority and he has begun to to rule. He's gained the victory over his enemies. In the ancient world, this word in the Greek, euangelion, from which we get the word gospel, also evangelical, this, uh, or e- the evangel, this word in the Greek, um, in addition to just mean good news in general, also had a technical use. And it meant good news that was associated with the kingdom, good news that was associated with the royal household, it might be the birth of an heir an heir not an error an heir the birth i, I may i give birth to a lot of errors <laughs> but it might be the good news of the royal household is that an heir has been born somebody who has the legal right or title to the throne in which case the king would send out heralds to make the announcement good news good news an heir has been born a son has been born. The king has a son who will rule after him. The good news might be that the royal son has actually come into power, that he's ascended the throne, in which case the message of the heralds sent out through the kingdom would be something like good news. The king has been crowned and he has begun to reign. The good news might be that the king has won a great victory in battle, in which case the heralds would go out and proclaim good news, good news, the king has triumphed over his enemies. This use of the word gospel for the announcement of good news concerning the royal household, I think, provides us with a very important backdrop against which to understand the scriptural use of the word, especially in the phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, which we read several times in the New Testament, the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew, for instance, tells us that Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom, And this, it is said very early in his ministry, Matthew chapter 4 and again in chapter 9, Jesus went about preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Now at this time, Jesus had not yet suffered and died and risen again, nor had he yet revealed that these things must happen. So what was he preaching? that could be called the gospel of the kingdom. We often associate the word gospel in a very narrow or limited sense, confined to his death, burial, and resurrection. Though that's essential as an aspect of the gospel, it's not the totality of the gospel. The gospel is a bit broader than this. It has to do with the rule or the reign of Christ, which was inaugurated upon the completion of his work of redemption, the death, his death, burial, and resurrection. At this time, Jesus is out preaching the gospel of the kingdom prior to his death, burial, and resurrection, prior to him even mentioning that these things must take place. The first words of our Lord, which the gospel writer Mark records, were these, "'The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel.'" Now, do you see here how he is associating the gospel with the coming kingdom of God? The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's here, right? How close is your hand? Well, it's right here. (laughs) It's right in front of me. It's here. Not off into the distant future. It is here. It is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And by this he means, I believe, the good news that the kingdom has come. This is the good news. The kingdom has come. Now, this raises a few questions. What did he mean by the kingdom of God? And second, in what sense can it be said that the kingdom had come, that it was at hand? Well, the kingdom of God is a major theme of the Bible and it's a central aspect of a biblical view of the world. The expression, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or simply the kingdom, uh, this appears throughout the Bible but they're used in more than one sense. On the one hand, God rules over all things. He always has and he always will, right? He created the entire universe. It's his creation. It belongs to him. He rules over it. He has sovereignty over it. He has power and authority over it. There's one sense in which then his kingdom, his reign, his rule is eternal. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all, David says in Psalm 103. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation, we read in Daniel 4. On the other hand, the kingdom of God is sometimes conceived of as having a beginning point in history, namely at the time of Christ. So how are we to reconcile these two apparently contradictory views of the kingdom, that it is eternal and universal, and also that it seems to have a beginning in history? Well, we reconcile these things by recognizing that God's kingdom and rule are eternal, but that with the fall, men have rebelled against it. Men have set up their own kingdoms in opposition to him. Back in Psalm 2, Psalm opens, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The earth is a place of rebellion against God. The fall of man was a revolt against the rule of God, and all of history subsequent to the fall is the history of God reasserting his crown rights, reasserting his sovereignty, calling upon the rebels to yield, to return again to his gracious rule. And this really is the epic battle of the ages, there have been many great battles fought between men which have proven to be decisive moments in human history, turning points that are fascinating to read about and to consider what the outcome or what the consequences would have been had the outcome been different. You might think, for example, if you're familiar with ancient or classical uh, history of the great battles between the Greeks and the Persians and, and how the outcome depended upon uh, a series of conflicts that occurred in uh, about the late fifth century, early fifth century BC, and how, against all odds, vastly outnumbered, outmanned, and and uh, outshipped because of the great navy or sea battles that took place, yet the Greeks stood firm and they defeated the Persians against all odds. And you wonder what would have been the outcome, or what would have been, uh, how would things have been different in history in Europe had the Persians won? One can think of the. Great Battle of Tours in 732. Many of you probably don't even know anything about it. One of the great battles of European history. The Muslim Arabs had crossed over the Straits of Gibraltar, entered southern Spain in the early 700s, had nearly completely captured the Iberian Peninsula, which would be Portugal and Spain, that crossed the Pyrenees Mountains into France, and it looked like they were going to take over all of Europe until a man by the name of Charles met them in battle. And he was given after the battle the name Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer. And there was a great battle that took place uh, near Tours, France, that stemmed the tide and turned back the invading forces. And one wonders, what would have happened? How would the history of Europe... Uh, looked differently than it did if the battle had gone the other way. Or one can think of D-Day, surely one of the great epic battles of all of history, and one shudders to think how subsequent history would have turned out had there been a different outcome to that battle, had the Allied forces not succeeded in landing on the beaches and taking the beaches and making their way finally uh, to the overthrow of the Nazi, uh, Nazi government. So there are many great battles. There are others that could be mentioned. And there's the stuff of legend, the things that inspire you, the courage that takes place, everything that hinges upon the outcome of a single battle. But the greatest of all epic battles is the battle in which we are all engaged. It's a battle of two kingdoms. It's the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the devil. It's the battle of good and evil, the forces of light against the forces of darkness. Jesus' incarnation... His taking on of human flesh and coming into the world was an invasion of the kingdom of God into hostile territory. It was a foray behind enemy lines, if you will, into uh, one of the rebellious provinces of Jehovah's kingdom. It was a foray in the person of Jesus Christ who came to this earth to reclaim territory that had been held by his enemies. And our Lord has established an outpost, a colony of loyal subjects whose job it is to be heralds of of the kingdom to announce the good news of Jesus' victory and to labor among those who are still in rebellion toward reclaiming their allegiance to their rightful sovereign, King Jesus. In this sense, we may think of the kingdom of God as being definitively or decisively established in this rebellion province of the Lord's dominion's earth at the time of Christ. God, yes, rules over all eternally, universally, but in this rebellious province of his dominion, men rebelled. Jesus comes here. He wins the decisive battle. He gains the victory. He establishes an outpost. The heralds are being sent out to pronounce good news. The king has come. The king has won a great victory. Now pledge your fealty, pledge your fidelity, swear your allegiance to King Jesus, So there is this definitive or decisive element to the kingdom, but then there is the progressive establishment of this kingdom through history by the proclamation of the gospel, and then there will be a fully established or finally established kingdom at the consummation when Jesus comes again. So let's look at each of these. Uh, The definitive or we could say the decisive establishment of the kingdom, the progressive establishment of the kingdom, and the final establishment of the kingdom. First, the decisive establishment. Early in the New Testament, as we've seen, the kingdom of God is described as having come. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus said. During his ministry, Jesus told the Pharisees that his casting out of demons was proof that the kingdom of God had come. Matthew twelve twenty eight. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Again, notice the... The fact that it's present in Jesus' day, not a far-off reality, but something that is present in the person of Jesus. He also said that the kingdom was in their midst in Luke chapter 17. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He was referring to himself. He was in their midst. The kingdom was in their midst because Jesus was in their midst. He is the king of the kingdom of God. And wherever he is, is, there's the kingdom. His arrival was the arrival of the kingdom. His sinless life and ministry and his death and resurrection were all a part of a cosmic battle, a victory that led to his enthronement. His ascension and his seating at the right hand of the Father was his formal inauguration as king. This heavenly enthronement was foreshadowed in his royal reception on Palm Sunday when they hailed him as their king. So the kingdom of God was decisively established in the days of Jesus, but it also has a progressive aspect to it. Just like on D-Day, the victory on D-Day, the successful landing and holding of the beaches was decisive in terms of the final outcome of the battle. Right? From that point forward, it was just a matter of how long was it going to take and, and uh, what exa- how exactly was it going to play itself out. The decisive battle took place then, just like in Christian history, the decisive battle took place at the cross. That's why the death, burial, and resurrection is central. It's crucial to the message of the gospel, but it doesn't exhaust the meaning of the word gospel because the, the decisive battle leads to our Lord's enthronement And now he's overseeing the progressive development, the progressive expansion of the kingdom. So the kingdom of God was decisively established in the days of Jesus, but there's a progressive aspect to it as well. It grows and expands in history as people submit to the lordship, or you could say the kingship of Jesus. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Very familiar passage to every evangelical Christian. This confession of Jesus as Lord is a recognition of and a submission to his authority as king. It is a pledging of allegiance to Christ, at which time, as Paul says, a person is delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. There is a transition or a change in citizenship. A person's citizenship is changed when he confesses Jesus as Lord. He was a subject of the domain of darkness, but by his pledging of allegiance to Christ as king, that's what we're saying when we say Jesus is Lord, he is king. With this pledge of allegiance, he has made a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever witnessed a, a naturalization ceremony? when immigrants to our country go through the process of becoming naturalized citizens. It's a beautiful thing. I've never been to one in person, but I've seen some online, and it's a beautiful thing where these immigrants who have studied, they have learned the language, they have learned American history, there are certain qualifications that uh, must be met, and they come to that point where they now pledge themselves to uphold the laws of the Constitution, to be faithful to its laws. They they pledge their allegiance to the United States. It's a beautiful thing. It's a moving thing. This is, in essence, what happens or what's intended when we talk about people confessing Jesus as Lord. We are renouncing all other loyalties and allegiances, and we're confessing our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point, there is a change of citizenship. We now become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is how the kingdom progressively expands through history. The heralds of the kingdom uh, or the gospel of the kingdom announce the good news of Christ's victory and they call upon people to submit to his gracious rule, to swear allegiance to, to swear fidelity to, to swear fealty to their rightful king. Jesus told the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven to illustrate this progressive and expansive nature of the kingdom. And... The extent of this expansion is beyond what many people, I think, dare to hope for. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, he tells these two short parables. He put another parable before them, saying, "...the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches." So the kingdom of heaven starts out very small, a very tiny little seed, but then it grows into the largest tree of the garden. It becomes the dominant plant in the garden. Jesus said, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It starts out small, but through history it grows very large. He told them another parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. A little bit of leaven that leavens the entire lump of dough. So this is what we have to look forward to with the gospel of the kingdom, that it will grow and expand through history. It should be very clear to our understanding that the future does not belong to Islam. It does not belong to Islam. The future does not belong to Hinduism. It does not belong to secularism or atheism. It belongs to Christ. Islam will go the way of Baal worship. It will be forgotten. It will be a footnote in history. And only those who have studied ancient history in time to come will know what Islam ever was. Atheism will fall under the weight of its own absurdity. Christ alone will be exalted. He alone will be recognized as king. He alone will be recognized as one who is worthy of worship. So we have the decisive establishment of the kingdom we have the progressive establishment of the kingdom and then there is the full or the final establishment of the kingdom the kingdom of god will continue to grow until it's all encompassing what began as a small outpost a tiny colony of loyal subject and subjects in the first century will continue to expand until all the ends of the earth all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. That's out on the sign of our front on our front lawn. Psalm twenty-two, verses twenty-seven through twenty-eight. The rebellion will be put down, the rebellion that began in the Garden of Eden, the rebellion that began with Adam and Eve taking of that fruit that has led to all the dire consequences of what we know as human history and all the tragedy and all the sorrow and all the trouble and all the crime and the wars and the heartache that one person has inflicted upon another, that rebellion that began then will eventually be put down. The Bible says that Christ must reign until the Father has put all his enemies under his feet all of those now who rebel and raise a fist to god and say i will not listen to what you have to say i will bear your or i will break your bonds and tear your fetters apart you shall not rule over me i am my own man i am my own woman will either be overcome by god's great grace or they will be taken out of the way in god's wrath and judgment again christ must reign until the father has put all his enemies under his feet this refers to a time when all men and nations are brought to the obedience of faith, when all opposition to his gracious rule is brought to an end. Then the end will come. This is what Paul says in the 15th chapter of First Corinthians. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And the idea is every rule, authority, and power that has been in rebellion against God. So let us always be mindful of the fact that the kingdom of God is a present reality. That is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We are praying for the continuing expansion, the the, the progressive establishment of the kingdom in history. We're praying that God would extend his rule over the hearts and lives of more and more people. It's essentially an evangelistic prayer, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Let earth reflect something of the perfection of heaven. Just as the holy angels love you and adore you and obey you, let that be so on earth among men. Let it be so among us. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom that Jesus announced, one writer says, The kingdom that Jesus announced then was a restoration of the kingdom that God had given to man at the original creation. The subsequent invasion of that kingdom by Satan and the revolt of man against the heavenly king did not remove God from his throne, but it did undermine the recognition of his kingship among men. That's what the rebellion initially did. It undermined the recognition of the kingship of God in the eyes of men. And this is a situation which the proclamation of the gospel is designed to remedy by calling people to the obedience of faith and the acknowledgement of Jesus as king. So when we go out and we share the gospel with people, we should, as a part of our presentation of the gospel, let them know that there is a duty. It's, It's not only God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but also you have a moral obligation to serve God. He is your rightful creator, Jesus Christ suffered and bled and died so that you may have a way open to eternal life. It's not simply an invitation, take it or leave it. it is a, there, did you know that the Bible talks in the New Testament about a command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? A command to respond faithfully to the message of the gospel. It is something that I think we sometimes fail to understand, that the kingdom is a present reality and that Christ's present reign as king is a reality, that he is in the process of enforcing his rule. It is by persuasion. It is by presentation of the gospel. It is by the Holy Spirit working with the word of God and the message of the gospel to persuade men's hearts. But it is nevertheless something that God commands all people to accept and to believe. When Jesus preached or announced that the kingdom was at hand, he was... Referring to the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of four successive world kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 2, it speaks about this great image. It's of a man, a human being, a great king, and it has four different um, elements to it that make up this statue a head of gold, a chest, and abdomen of, of silver, and so on down the line. And the prophet is told. That this represents four successive world empires. And they turn out to be Babylon, first. The vision was seen in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Persia, second. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, after you shall arise another kingdom. It shall be inferior to yours, just as silver is inferior to gold. Well, we know from history that that second kingdom that arose after the Babylonian kingdom was the Persian kingdom. And then after that, it was Greece. Alexander the Great conquered the territory that had been held by the Persians. And then after that, it was the Roman Empire who held that territory. Four successive world empires or kingdoms. And then the prophecy says that in the days of the fourth kingdom, the God of heaven would himself set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed and it would eventually fill the whole earth. Now, what kingdom did God set up in the days of the Roman Empire? It was the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And anybody who lived in the first century who would see that tiny little band of faithful followers of Jesus and were, would be told that it's this group of people who are fulfilling this prophecy, that this is the kingdom of that the God of heaven is setting up, the kingdom that will never end, the kingdom that will fill the whole earth, anybody who would have said that would have been laughed off the face of the earth. You're telling me that this ragtag group of people, these 12-man farmers, fishermen, tax collector, and their stragglers and holders on, you're going to tell me that this is the formation of a new kingdom that eventually is going to fill the whole earth? Had we been there, we might not have believed it either. But if it's the Lord himself telling us this, then we believe it regardless of what our otherwise better judgment would say. Our better judgment always says, let's go with what God says, (laughs) regardless of what I see or what I think is possible. Let's go with what God says. And that's what God said, that he would set up a kingdom in the days of this fourth world empire that would eventually fill the earth and it would never end. This is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ begun during the reign of the Caesars. The gospel that we're called upon to proclaim is the good news that the king has come. His kingdom has been established. He has gained the victory. He has defeated the powers of evil. Do you believe that? Do you believe that 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 has happened? It's not entirely a future thing. There is a mopping up. There is a, a completion of the project that needs to be accomplished. But do you understand that the decisive thing is what happened at the cross? The decisive thing is not what happens in the future. The decisive thing is what has happened in the past, just like D-Day. Shortly before going to his death, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. When? 2,000 years from now? 10,000 years from now? No, now, he says, is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Well, wait a minute, don't we see the devil still active in the world today? Don't we say, don't we complain that we have three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil? Isn't he still around? Isn't he still active? Yes, he is. But the, defi- the, the decisive defeat has already been delivered. The blow that renders him uh, to, sure to be dead has already been delivered. He's referring, again, to this decisive battle. Paul tells us that in the cross, our Lord Jesus disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. The Apostle John tells us in his first letter that Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. By his going to death and rising again from the dead, he has destroyed the devil because that was the thing that held people in bondage. The devil's hold of death. In Revelation, it says that he saw, John says, he saw Satan bound that the nations might no longer be deceived. The gospel goes out. The truth goes out. In order to uh, rectify the deception that the nations have been held in for so long with their false religion and false philosophy and all the things that lead them away from God, the message of the gospel goes out, the truth goes out, so that the nations would no longer be deceived. Israel had the truth, the nations didn't. But at the time of Christ and the victory that he gains and after his resurrection, he sends out the heralds of the kingdom so that the nations can be undeceived by hearing the truth. The writer of Hebrews tells us that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. The turning point in history is what happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago with the death resurrection, death and resurrection of Christ. That's the decisive establishment of the kingdom. The king has come. He has gained his victory. The kingdom has been established. He has begun his reign. The gospel of the kingdom is the announcement that this is so. It's happened. And it's a summons to give allegiance to the rightful king. It's a summons to renounce all association with the king's enemies. It is a call to forsake all sinful loyalties. All of these ideas are contained in the basic Christian confession, Jesus is Lord. This is not just a simple platitude that sounds nice. We'll put it on a plaque on the wall and we'll think, oh, what a lovely thought. No, this has a very practical effect on the way we think on the way we live, on the way we interact with other people, how we perform our job, the kind of character we aspire to. Jesus is Lord. This is a a reality, and and there's a depth and a meaning to this that I think that we have failed to understand. There's so much more to these words than what most people are willing to recognize. This, as I said, is the loyalty oath or the citizen oath of the kingdom of God, the swearing of allegiance to Jesus Christ, professing him to be the Lord of all and our Lord, not just he's, yes, he's Lord in some abstract sense, but yes, he's my Lord. I bow the knee to Jesus Christ. I confess that he's my rightful sovereign. I look to him for guidance. Paul says in Philippians in a passage that we read earlier, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the goal towards which um, God is working in history. That every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for what purpose? For the glory of God the Father. You see, this is... This is what all of history is about. You know, if you know me, you know I'm a lover of history. And there are different ways in which people have tried to organize history. Some do it around class warfare. That was Karl Marx, right? All of history can be interpreted in terms of one class um, rising up and overthrowing a higher class. Um, Some people try to reinterpret all of history in terms of the uh, oppressed seeking to overthrow the oppressors. Or so there's a feminist uh, philosophy of history. There's a black liberation philosophy. Of, there's all different kinds of philosophies of history. I would submit to you that the true way to look at history is what God is doing in establishing his kingdom. Uh, from, from fall to consummation, God has something that he is doing, something that he is seeking to accomplish and will accomplish, and that's the way we understand the rise and fall of nations that's the way we understand why some nations rise and others fall, some prosper, some endure, and some for a very short time seem to pop up and fade away like the passing of the night. But it's all a part of God's grand strategy to bring about the completion or the fullness of his kingdom. I would submit to you that the, pro- the, the best history book hasn't yet been written <laughs> because there hasn't been a history book that I'm aware of that has used the kingdom of God as the organizing principle of, how to, of seeking to understand all of history. This is what God is working towards. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray.